0: people realize that it's actually different each time.
1: Almost every time. There are some repeats.
0: No. <laughs> we never take the opening of the Tato.
1: Well, there were times in the early, early days where oh. we didn't do this every single week, <laughs> and so there were some repeats in the early days. Otherwise, probably in the last...
0: 50 episodes. Yeah. there's <laughs> They have been appropriate yes. to the wine or beer at hand,
1: yeah, or spirit in some cases.
0: Yes, we've opened up the gin bottle. Yeah, and it had a unique sound from this Ruth Lewandowski tato. Mm. Welcome to Scores and pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by Sommelier Joel Mott. That's me and radio host Emily Reese.
1: Today, it's all about the holidays. I'm going to talk about a very special holiday piece of classical music, and Jill's going to talk about a holiday wine and some other holiday wine favorites.
0: If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scores and pours. We've set up a new tier system, which makes it super easy to donate with some patron-only content and merch.
1: And you can find a link to merch also on our Patreon page. And thank you so much to our existing patrons. We couldn't do this without
0: you. Hello, Jill Mott. Why, hello, Emily Reese. How are you today? I am great. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you too. It's it's a strange holiday season, but yeah, you know, I'm I'm happy to be around yes. this holiday yes. season. It's um, I'll make the best of it. I'll hopefully get in like. Some sledding or something.
2: Yeah.
1: I would maybe instead of saying happy holidays, say something like, try to be happy holidays.
0: Happy existing <laughs> holidays, everyone. Just happy existing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> is there Are there any traditions that you won't be able to do this year that you... And then are you going to start a new one? Yeah, I mean, like year? seeing like, my
1: family during the holidays is a tradition that I okay. <laughs> won't be doing this year. But... um uh, yeah, we, I mean, we had more of that when we were kids and that is now passed kind of to my sister's kids do those things. Like we always, when we were growing up, we'd always get pajamas to open up on Christmas Eve and wear our new pajamas and then wake up the next day and there's always Christmas dinner and, you know, all of that. a Very typical Midwestern, I would say, Christmas with delicious Chex Mix and a giant bird and some gravy that you can pour on literally Everything you eat that
0: day. (laughs) That's so great. (laughs) On Christmas Eve, our family would do something really fun where we'd pick a country and we'd like listen to music from that country and play games from that country and like eat, you know, try to learn as much as we could about the foods. And sometimes you'd have to kind of go into a region because they're like China.
1: It's a good good place. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So that's been a really fun tradition. And then uh, lately, we've also been like going on a little family trip together Mm -hmm. to somewhere warm. My parents, like, They think that we should all be together, and they're like, we want to leave you no money. We want to have memories. (laughs) Um, And I think that that's a really sweet gesture, and obviously this year that's just likely not going to happen because of travel and all that stuff. But I will try to get in some sledding. Yes. I'm going to try to overdose on caffeine on Christmas Day. Like Christmas morning, just have like five cups of coffee and go ice skating. Yes. Yes. I, mean, I don't know. Um, like maybe start the day with Metallica and end it with Messiah. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it like just—it's going to be a weird Christmas, but it I'm going to try to make the best of it.
1: Yeah, I've certainly since I have rate—I've been in radio for so many years now that that has meant that I have spent a lot of holidays without my family. But I usually see them on at least one because I'll usually work either Thanksgiving or Christmas, and it's been like that for the last you know 15 years of my life. But uh, it, it'll be strange to not see them at all, like, at all. Uh, I've certainly, I've even worked both holidays, but I've still seen them in between the two or something, yeah. you know? It's, so it's just going to be really strange. I mm-hmm. I miss them. The majority
0: yeah. of the country is in our shoes. Exactly. And you know? so that said, today, obviously, we don't mean to bring you down. We're, yeah, just like giving, we're just, like, giving you, you know, a little window into into our lives and, like, our Christmas traditions. One of my favorite holidays is Thanksgiving because it doesn't have to do with presents. You know, I like the... Idea that it's, you know, about being together and cooking and, you know, being outdoors if you can. But I do have very fond memories of like, my parents were like really thoughtful gift givers when I was younger. So, like, I remember getting a guitar and I really wanted a guitar and a, like, a little stereo system that for me at at my age was probably like nicer than I needed. Right. But I was like, I really like this Iowa. Better than a boom box, but it was, like, not a stereo. And I, you know, I got that for, like, things like that. You know, I just got really thoughtful gifts that were, you know, a lot of times, I was known to, like, pre-open gifts and then rewrap them. Um, and that way I didn't have to have that surprise look on my face when I didn't want like a pair of gloves that like, I don't know, my grandma got me or something. Amazing. And so then I was like, oh my God, this is amazing gloves. Wow. And then I would just, you know, find a way to return them or something. But I stopped that. My dad was like, I can't believe you're doing that. And then I was like, you're right, dad. It just gets rid of all the fun. So yeah. I stopped doing that.
1: Amazing. The one time I shook a present, I broke it and got in a ton of trouble. And I still have it. It's a music box. And I like shook it and the little pin oh, no. that closes the box broke off. And so wow. you know, I was like five years old and I will I scarred for life.
0: Yikes, yikes. You know? Well, one thing that I did want to mention during this holiday time is I know people are gift giving in a lot different ways. Of a fashion, right? They can't be together. Some people will probably be shipping a lot of things. Other people won't be. One thing you can could consider doing as a gift is either getting people some scores and pours merch. <laughs> but also we've developed a tier system that I spoke about in the intro. One of us spoke about in the intro because it's easier for people to just pick a level that works for them and go to town. They don't have to, but yeah. if they do, they get member only content. And so on every tier, but specifically the $5 tier, you're going to get I mean, you and I love to obviously drink wine, listen to music, and I I cook a lot. And so Emily and I were like, wow, why don't we – it was, I think, maybe even your idea, Emily. You were like, we should have something where we like do wine and food pairings. And I was like, well, and then music pairings. Yeah. So we're going to include for the $5 tier and then the other tiers as well, the $10 and $20 tier, you're going to get a bi-weekly, so twice a month. We're going to send you a recipe – and or an idea or a food stuff that we're super into, mm-hmm. a wine pairing, and that's going to include a specific wine, but also like a genre in case you can't find, you know, an exact wine because we have people listening to us in Europe. We have people listening to us in the Middle East, and they might not be able to find, you know, Method Salvage mondues, or something. Yeah. And then we're going to include a classical symphony composition, a pairing as well. That you've mm-hmm. chosen, you're mm-hmm. going to tell us why. Yeah, I'm going to say I'm going to tell everybody why the the wine goes with the food, and then of course beer and spirits and jazz uh, are all fair game because we love those things yeah. too.
1: Yeah, that's totally true.
0: Ten dollar tier gets what wine key? Yes, we have scores and pours, corkscrews that that are being crafted as printed as we speak, mm-hmm. and so we'll be including th- that. We'll be shipping those out to our ten dollar patrons along with. They will also get the bi-weekly content. Yeah. And then we have our $20 tier, which you'll get a scores and pours t-shirt, which is awesome. Um, you'll just need we'll need to we'll inquire about your size. And then you'll also get, of course, the drinks, food, and listening experience.
1: We're excited that we can have these corkscrews and we've got these shirts, and it's fun to share all of this with you. So check us out. Patreon.com slash scores and Happy holidays.
0: Now to what the holidays can really be about. Yeah, let's start <laughs> with drinking. <laughs> all, this talk of, all this talk of like family and no travel and stuff just makes yeah. me want to be like, and don't mind if I do. So we are drinking a really delicious orange wine. It's about as orange as
1: I've ever seen a wine be.
0: From a producer in Northern California, but who actually used to cellar their wines and age their wines, finish fermentations in Utah, of all places.
1: Yeah, crazy.
0: And we'll get, to, we'll get to more information about this producer in a second, but cheers to Scores and Pours. Cheers. The reason why I chose this is because I like, I'll talk about some, obviously some classic.
1: Isn't it bad luck to
0: not take it? It is. I was just going to get that oh, out okay. of my hands because I was sick <laughs> of holding it here. Um, I'm like. <gasps> I know. Drink, Jill, drink. Yes, you're right. Okay, here I go. All right. Mm. Nectarines, Whoa. apricots, dry, cinnamony, almost, almost. Yeah, it's like it's like Chinese five spice kind of. I
1: like don't know what that is.
0: Like, there's a little bit of there's a little bit of that cinnamon, but there's like nutmeg and cloves. Yeah, there's a little nut- bit of like, yeah. Those are the mm. things
1: I taste. Yeah, those. and
0: like Szechuan peppercorn. It's super complex, super fun wine. I'll wow. T- I'll talk more about it in a moment. But I, as much as I want to talk about why I've chosen this wine, yeah. You talk, because I've been talking for like 25 minutes here. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: well, today we're going to talk about a, a piece of music that is heard around the world uh, during the Christmas season and never actually was intended to be a Christmas piece, but has ended up that way. So I am talking about The Messiah by George Friedrich Handel. Handel was a Baroque composer. He was born in 1685, and he died in 1759. Handel, born the same year as Johann Sebastian Bach, also born the same year as Vivaldi. So it's a, it was a hot year <laughs> for cranking out Baroque composers in the world. Emily's like, I would have liked to
0: have been born in any time even though obviously women were revered during those times. <laughs> yeah, that would have been like, like I would have loved to have been born in 1685. If I could have had,
1: like, gobs of money and been able to just be, be, like, carriage me around Europe so I can listen to Bach and Handel and Haydn. Well, not Haydn, but Bach and Handel, Vivaldi, Rameau. Yes, please, all day. Take me to France. Take me to London. Take me to Germany, Italy. Do it. Yeah, that, that would have been amazing. Would have been amazing. Anyway, Handel. Uh, thought of himself as an opera composer. He wrote loads of operas, but he also wrote loads of what are called oratorios. And an oratorio is very similar to an opera, except without costumes or uh, any kind of staging 98% of the time. So an oratorio you would go typically to see in a concert hall or a church, and there would be a choir and probably some kind of, small smattering of instruments and uh, some kind of organ or harpsichord or some such keyboard playing. And then there are usually soloists as well, like you would see in an opera, but they're not moving around.
0: And it's not like narrative, right? Like, yes, it can tell a story, but it's not like they're sitting and having this dialogue and there's drama and like an opera is. Yeah, I mean,
1: oratorios can Be very similar to opera in that way, but there really is never going to be any wandering around and costuming and and stuff like that. But otherwise, even the musical elements are very similar in that there are what we'd say an aria, which is where someone is just a soloist with whatever kind of accompanying instruments Mm -hmm. are happening. Uh, We call that in the industry park and bark. (laughs) When, because, because in an aria, basically what happens is any kind of storytelling that there may or may not be grinds to a halt. And someone is literally just singing about how much they're in love with Marco or something along those lines. Then there are parts in an oratorio, just like opera, called recitative where and we'll listen to a little bit of recitative at some point too but that's where all the storytelling is happening that's where the majority of the mm-hmm. words are are happening and so and then there's chorus right so mm-hmm. then there's the whole choir sings in in a recitative that's a soloist as well so the solo parts are the aria the recitative and then the chorus joins in from time to time
0: it's like someone talking in a way that is like like singing but they're not they are, of course, singing, mm-hmm. but they're not like – it's like they're almost talking yeah. in a way that they're singing. It'd be like yeah. if I were to see, say, Emily, how are you today? I'm not really like mm-hmm. – y- right? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, you'd be telling me a lot of things, though, too. You'd be like, yesterday I went down to the corner, and there I saw a man who gave me a pamphlet, and then he said to me, look out. There's someone following you. You know what I mean. It's like that. Wow, I was gonna. <laughs> my
0: my my <laughs> recitative was gonna be way different than that. But okay, I hear so you know what I mean. And
1: then the aria would be like ta- the, a whole song about the man who's following you. You well, know so what I mean. Let's
0: back up. So yeah. So Handel he was born in Prussia, right? What well, was a present day Germany. Yes. Right. And then he moved to. He was kind of considered. He was like.
1: He became British eventually. Yeah. yeah. So Handel moved to London. Permanently in 1712, er, <laughs> but technically kind of 1710, he moved to London and he loved it there. And he got really rich there too, by the way, uh, because he was very good at like playing the stock market and doing things with his money mm. in really great ways and was him. able to be tremendously charitable. As well, okay, with his money, um, but anyway, that's an aside. He he loved it there, and eventually stopped writing operas in Italian and started writing everything in English. Therefore, Handel, being a, technically what we would consider a German composer, moves to England and writes the Messiah in English. So,
0: like 20 ish years after his move, right, give or take.
1: Yeah, he wrote it in seventeen forty one, and yeah, it's just it's such a I love The Messiah. I mean, I I grew up hearing it every Christmas because in my hometown in Iowa, there was a community choir who would perform it and my mom was really active in that choir and helped to kind of organize that. And so I would go to rehearsals every I sometimes I'd play in the orchestra. I mean, it was like I grew up hearing it every year for probably at least 10 years of my life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, um that makes an impact and you know, if I when I go home at the holidays, it's always playing on the stereo, Mom's Always Playing a CD of Messiah.
0: Can we listen to just a little, like, the one that Mom's Always Playing? Like, what what is one of the movements that Mom's Always Playing?
1: I would say, that? I mean, you know, any of it, but, but to get to the point and to play something, let's just start at the beginning, okay. which is instrumental. So let's just hear how it starts. It starts uh, kind of dark, in my opinion. It starts a little dark, but yeah, let's do it. Candle scored this, keeping in mind that he, was, he knew he was going to premiere it in Dublin, and he knew that the musicians in Dublin weren't as good as the musicians in London. And so he reduced the size and the instrument type to, in terms of how big the orchestra was, and he also really simplified the choir parts as well. Um, but in terms of the orchestra, he called for... Two trumpets, two oboes, two violins, one viola, a timpani, and basso continuo, which we've talked about before, and that's basically like a keyboard instrument and a bass or -hmm. something. Um, So just a tiny little boop of an orchestra.
0: So why did he decide to do it in, first of all, I love how this sounds festive, but I could listen to it any time of year, you know, I mean and was this and it's correct me if i'm wrong the messiah is three parts yes right it's like jesus being born and you know the shepherds telling jesus is coming mm-hmm. and then there's the passion mm-hmm. and the death yes of of christ mm-hmm. and then there's the resurrection the judgment those are like the three sections right and like the basically well, the
1: redemption is the third part the resurrection happens at the end of part Two. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, the passion and the resurrection in part two. Part two is the longest. And then part three is the redemption and everybody's going to heaven and all, all right. of that. So, so okay. yeah. And, and the whole piece is long. It's about two and a half hours long. And so, what often happens, if you go to a live performance, they're almost always abbreviated in some way. Okay. Um, but... You know, it's easy enough to find the whole piece on a recording.
0: The only time I've ever seen it, yeah, it was like an hour long. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, that makes sense because you really can cut out. I mean, you're cutting out a lot of good stuff to do that because even today I put in what I considered the bare minimum and it was still more than an hour and I didn't even put really in what should be the bare minimum. So it's it's tough to, to, to choose decide. because, you know, and it's not, it's not so much as you're saying – you know, we know the story, right? So it's not like we need necessarily to be told the story. Mm-hmm. So it's not as much what you're cutting out in terms of the narrative. It's more like, what are you cutting out musically? Because the music is so great.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, someone said that that both the, you know, the librettist, what, yeah. Charles Jennings or something Jennings, like that, yeah. that he was... You know, some people kind of said he's not so great, but most people that know Messiah well and have studied it say that it's nothing short of genius, mm. especially alongside of Handel's composition, which, by the way, yeah, 24 days?
1: 24 days. He wrote it in 24 days. Now...
0: I want to be like what an ass. What? Who can do that? <laughs> well, and I know that I know that that was kind of his MO, like he was kind of he was writing things, he was very yeah. proficient and efficient. And yes. yes, I know he he edited, but I mean like revisions yeah. that I know aren't in the f- a lot of the final like yeah. the first publication didn't even include those in the whatever after his death in the 60s, 1760s, but like still that's crazy that
1: Yeah, he wrote it really fast and some people depending on what you're reading or watching, some people will give that a very divine bent
0: Yeah, of that course. might
1: not exactly be there because Jennings, the librettist, and again, in, a, in in opera or choral works, libretto, those are the words. So generally speaking, unless you're like Richard Wagner, and we'll talk about that someday, you don't write your own words. Someone else writes the lyrics to your opera
2: mm-hmm. or
1: your oratorio. And so this man, Jennings, took text straight out of the Bible, King James Bible, Old Testament and New Testament to create this narrative. And even, you know, using one of the things I really like about it is using uh, interweaving into the New Testament stuff, the prophecies from the Old Testament as well. So, a lot of Isaiah's writings from the Old Testament show up through the passion telling and and stuff, which I think is is kind of neat. So
0: also, is it true that you, out of King James Bible, but also the Coverdale Psalter, it was like the first ever Bible that was actually fully translated into English was like part of the oh cool yeah I'm Psalms not sure. or something like that yeah right. I guess which is kind of cool
1: mm-hmm. and um, yeah there are a lot of Psalms in it too which again that's Old Testament.
0: I yeah. want to well I want to talk about. The Dublin connection, and I want to get into more music. But should I? Should we wine? Yeah, a little bit? definitely. Yeah. With regards to holiday wines, I always find myself like not, I don't want to say in a rut because I'm not. But I, and this is going to sound super condescending, but like the rest of the world kind of is, <laughs> or, or at least like my immediate circle and what I'm paying attention to, like you. You know, whether you're reading, you know, Wine Spectator or, you know, the New York Times. I mean, it just kind of seems like everybody recommends the same thing year in and year out, like, and different iterations thereof. So, Mm. the wines that not only that I'm going to talk about today, but the wines they're recommending are, of course, wines that have characteristics that you want for a holiday meal. What are you eating? A gazillion calories, rich usually, you know, like fat laden, hopefully very flavorful. And so you're like, you're looking for a wine that is usually not too heavy. You're looking for a wine that's got nice, bright acidity to help cut through a lot of that richness. You want a wine that, you know, might have a little bit of sweetness, depending on if you have some, any spicy food involved. But you want wine with some texture, a little tannin. Like a lot of people love red. A lot of people love orange wines because of, You know, if you're having meat, if you're having proteins that you need to chew on, that helps kind of salvate. If you have wine with tannin, it it makes your mouth salvate a little bit and you get the, the texture in the gums. But what do people recommend? Riesling. Yeah. Sparkling wine, champagne, pet nets, Pinot Noirs. That's one I don't get. Pinot Noir. The other two I get, sort of, but I mean, Pinot Noir, why? Because you think it's light? Because Pinot Noir is light in color, but as we've talked about on the show, Pinot Noir can be 11% alcohol, but Pinot Noir can also be 15% alcohol. Crazy. And alcohol is body, right? So the higher the alcohol percentage, the more body a wine has. And so Pinot Noir, I just don't get why people are like, get a Pinot Noir, but whatever. This is the time of year that everybody pulls out their expensive Cabernet, which fits... None of the profiles I just spoke of. <laughs> they're not light or medium bodied, usually. They're not high in acid or medium in acid. They're usually blousy as shit. And they end up being like, I kind of have some residual sweetness, even though everybody wants to say they're dry. You know, there's a reason why they command 100 points, you know. And mm. so it just ends and it's in their show pieces. And yeah, can they be delicious? Yes, fine. But like yeah. hit me over the head with all of the food and then a big chalice of $300 Cabernet. No, Gross. thank you. Right, And and so th- this is like what is getting recommended. Yes, there's once in a while you hear like the sherry reference, like get some nutty sherry. Start with sherry. Yes. Sherry's good. Sherry's good with some cracked nuts and cheeses and such. And even the main meal, but it's going to be a really hard sell to talk to people about sherry because people yeah. think it's sweet or it's stronger. And People may drink a little bit more th- during the holidays, so, like, yep, cherries may maybe not the best angle for folks that don't know how to control themselves. <laughs> and I would like to argue my favorite wines usually fit in the categories that I was mentioning, the characteristics that I was mentioning before, like the high acid and the light to medium bodied. But they end up... I have a story to tell. Like, they're wines that really mean something to me, and so I want to share them with people. And they may not necessarily... I'm not thinking exactly about this dish and all of the intricacies of that dish that I'm preparing from one year we did Austria, one year we did Spain, one year we did Egypt in in the family Christmas Eve thing. But I want to bring a wine or a couple wines that are like – or a few wines that are like – they're friends of mine that make them or I visited them or Mm -hmm. it just – it was like my wine of the year and I happened to have an extra bottle, you know? I guess that's one of the reasons why I chose this wine because not only do I think it goes so well with a lot of different possible Christmas and holiday traditions, because let's face it, how many, everybody's got a, you know, you mentioned Chex Mix, my family's into Chex Mix, Mm -hmm. my family used to be into cornflake cheesy potatoes and (laughs) ham, and now that's totally different, you know, so like it's just, everybody's got a different holiday tradition, right? And we're thinking like all the great Jewish foods and just, there's just, a laundry list. and so
1: Give me some Kugel. Mm.
0: <laughs> oh. <clears throat> uh, so this wine is from a, a friend of mine, Evan Lewandowski, who he makes wines under the Ruth Lewandowski label. And I'll uh, tell you why he's named it Ruth Lewandowski. I get it asked, that asked almost every time I recommend this wine. Why is it Ruth if, it, if you keep saying he? <laughs> it's a 2019 vintage. It just released. It's called Tato. It's mm-hmm. an orange wine. Mm. It's got about seven to ten days of maceration and there are th- on the skin, so it's an orange wine, and there are three different grape varietals. Friulano, which is native to the Veneto area in Italy. There's some Riesling, just about 20 25%, and then there's the- a wee bit, just 5%, give or take, of Muscat. And all of those grapes were macerated separately. They're from three different vineyards up in Mendocino, um, they were macerated separately and then they were blended right before bottling. Just oh wow. So that they could, you know, he was like, "Ooh, I really want this combination." You know, you bench blend and you're like, "That's what I want." So I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little bit about Evan and his story, which is why this wine is delicious in and of itself. Yeah. But why I'm, I recommended it? What do you think about now that it's kind of losing its chill? And oh man, I love that smell of like it could be clay, but it's not. He doesn't use yeah. clay. Just that it does like, smell terracotta smell. clayy. Yeah. Mm.
1: And rocky and apricotty.
0: Great call, yeah. Both.
1: I'm gonna need more soon. <laughs> it's very good.
0: Seconded. Oh my yeah. gosh.
1: Yeah, it really does taste like it could be clay. It's crazy.
0: I like that tannin. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like on par with like a light, a lighter tannin yeah. red wine. Yeah. And if you were to drink this room temperature or cellar temperature, we'll say like high fifties, low sixty degrees Fahrenheit. You'd know it probably wasn't a red wine, but you'd be hard-pressed to think it, it drinks a lot like a red wine or mm. like a rosé as opposed to a, just a straight-up, you know, a white wine. Sure. But gorgeous stuff from Evan, and we'll talk more about his story and why it would make my table after we get to some more Messiah.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we should at least hear the choir sing. We yes, should hear please. some singing because please. this is, again, a giant choral work. That's an oratorio, always has a big chorus, so— Handel wrote 29 oratorios. So he he liked this idea of uh, as a delivery uh, of his music. And you were kind
0: of curious about Dublin, right? Well, I wonder that this is right around the time of the, just before this was premiered in the 1740s or whatever, 42. Mm-hmm. A few years prior, we had a terrible famine in Ireland. And I know you were saying that you know, he was very charitable. Mm-hmm. So I wondered if there was any sort of correlation there, why it premiered there. The reason—that's
1: a really great question. The First of all, the Messiah, the the premiere was a charity performance, and the money went to get people out of debtor's prison and orphans. So he paid off a tremendous amount of people's debt just from that concert alone and continued to do that throughout his life to help people get out of—because, I mean, can you imagine if we still had debtor's prison? I'd have been in there 20 years ago for sure (laughs) but you know I mean it's it's amazing that that was still happening at that time so that's what the charity was for for that and that was a pretty big theme of his I think was debtor, uh, wiping out people's debt. The reason it was in Dublin is because in London the popularity for his music was just waning just the tiniest bit and
0: particularly for um, opera. So maybe it was like a tandem thing. Maybe it was like popularity, but also yeah. he saw the opportunity to... Yes.
1: He knew that a concert there would do well, and it did. It sold out. I mean, there's all these accounts of you know the organizers asking men to leave their swords at home and ladies to not wear hoop skirts because it would be standing room only and they needed all the room they could get. Just imagine that in 2020. Just a room of people side by side. Um, and and the premiere went really well in, in Dublin. The premiere in England happened about a year later in London. Didn't go as well, but the piece still maintained uh, popularity and as, you know, obviously stayed super popular. So let's hear some of it. This will be uh, the very first chorus you hear. I mean I could just listen to that all day I just love that
0: yeah I could during the <laughs> holiday season yeah and it, it <laughs> yeah. does remind me it's very much you know it reminds me of like coming into someone's house it's you festive know, being yeah being welcome mm-hmm. into their their home mm-hmm. and you, everybody kind of gathers in the kitchen and this is on in the background and again this was supposed to
1: be an Easter piece and it was that's when it premiered in Dublin was Easter time and that's when the Messiah traditionally was always performed, and then it just kind of somehow migrated to Christmas, and then it's just been Christmas ever since.
2: (laughs) ¶¶ There are four,
1: four, four, four soloists, soprano soloist, alto soloist, okay. tenor soloist, and a bass soloist. So those are the four voice types, right? High okay. high woman, low woman, high male, low male. Okay. Um, and uh, those have really varying degrees. They, they each have something super important that they do. And, uh, you know, for instance, the longest movement in the whole of the Messiah is an alto solo. and is kind of like the height of the despair of Jesus is about to be crucified kind of thing in part two. And it's like almost 10 minutes long, this beautiful alto solo. Um, The bass has a, I mean, they each have wonderful solos, but I mean, it's just like the, they're, yeah, they're all very important solos.
0: So what do you want to listen to next? Well, let's go ahead and listen to um Because I like how varied you know, it sounds festive and yeah. I know that's you know it started kind of dark. yeah but I mean I like how varied it is already.
1: Yeah, let's listen to remember I was talking about recitative. so yeah. let's listen to what recitative sounds like in you know, obviously it's a little different in each kind of vocal setting, but let's the, the, listen
0: the, to a recitative. <laughs> yeah. If you please she that in heaven shall love them to
2: scorn. Lord, shall
1: Another trait of recitative or recit, as we call it, is if you listen to the accompaniment, how it's like chord, chord, chord. The, the accompaniment is very sparse to allow the soloist, the singer, mm. the time to say all the words they need to say. Oh. So let's listen to it again so you can listen to the texture difference between the vocalist being like, I'm telling you a story, Perfect, bruh, bruh, yeah. bruh, and the very light accompaniment in the back.
0: I wonder if the organ number is like. Plays a little early. He's like, hurry up, buddy. <laughs> kind of hilarious.
1: I'm sure it's happened.
0: So recitative, like, is that a term that you think, I mean, does everybody that listen to classical music that is like working at a classical music station or for a record label or they all know what that is? They right? all
1: know recitative okay. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's such a huge part of opera. Like anytime you go to opera, not anytime, but most times you go to some kind of opera, you're going to hear... And plus when, when, let's say, a composer writes an opera, but they want to make a version for just an orchestra to play, we've talked about that. Sometimes they'll take their giant opera and make a suite
2: mm. for
1: just an orchestra to play. Yep. The orchestra's not playing recit. They're playing all the arias and stuff. And so you just kind of learn that through opera and... Okay. Yeah. Common, common term, yeah.
0: Cool. Well, yeah. a not com- can I talk about a not common winemaker? I
1: would love that. Yeah.
0: So Evan Lewandowski, I, I met him for the first time at a couple different wine fairs, and Evan and I just had this like this connection. This, you know, I think a, a lot of people you you meet a boatload of people. You know, and, and some people, if obviously you're drinking too much, you're not spitting, you know, then everybody's besties. <laughs> and that's really not my style when I'm at these tastings. I really try to do my best to, like, stay focused. And um, Evan just really struck me about, like, his story. Uh, when I first met him, he was still working in the California, Utah realm. And so what he was doing was he, just to give you a little background on Evan, so he was a busser. He was getting his degree in exercise science basically like metabolism all these things wow. and all the while you know he's a busser he sees a check on a table that's like this bottle of wine was x amount of money he's like why the hell would anybody spend that amount of money on wine so he starts attending the wine trainings for the servers and he like immediately was attached exactly like I was when I started to learn about geology and art and history and all these things that you know you may not you're interested in but just wine touches all of those, right? Yeah, And so he decided that he wanted to go and work harvests, and he's worked all over the world. He's worked in Australia, of course the United States, France, Argentina, and you know New Zealand, I think. And he decided that he the way he wanted to switch majors because he was like, well, I'm not going to use this major anymore. I want to well, work in wine. Yeah. But then he's like, but I don't want to go to school for it. I'd rather stage around the world and learn from other winemakers, other families, which he did. Stage,
1: by the way, I'm sorry, that's the restaurant term for mentor. Like he wants to be an understudy apprentice kind of. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so he, you know, he lands in, he's in California and he, you know, starts making his own wine and he loves Utah. And so in in 2012, when he starts Ruth Lewandowski, he's like, I'm going to, you know, Get get the grapes from California, pick the grapes, and then I'm going to let the ferments start in California, but then I'm gonna truck them all and age them all in Utah. And, you know, these poly tanks and barrels. And people thought he was nuts, but here he wanted to like tend to vines in Utah. He wanted to like start a wine community in Utah, um, which I think is where he a lot of this happened with being a busser and okay. you know, happened in, in Salt Lake. And he really appreciated, you know, he was, he considered himself, a, he's a white 30, late 30s male, right, or early mm-hmm. 40s male. And he's like, I'm in the minority because he wasn't, he's not Mormon. Mm-hmm. And so like, that was a unique thing to find a, to find community there, yes. which he did. they were super tight, but he loves the outdoors. So he's all Utah all day. And then he started to realize very quickly, a couple of years ago, he's like, carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. But that's what kind of put him on the map. People were like, what is this guy doing? He's got like California wine, but it says Utah on his label and like (laughs) on his website and whatever. So now he's making wines in Geyersville, which is north of Hedlesburg in California, about, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes. And then he's getting a lot of his fruit. Most of it's from Mendocino area. And Evan is very hard worker, loves the outdoors, and... He decided on the name Ruth Lewandowski, which I guess is fitting. This doesn't, I didn't mean for this to be, we didn't mean for this to be like the the show about Christianity, but (laughs) he used to be, his family were Catholics, probably still are. And he was like, you know, it was kind of typical, like nobody really talked about it, but they just went to church every Sunday. And he was, fell into like being a church group leader and very evangelical. And then he sort of fell out of that. But there are still a lot of, life lessons that aren't necessarily theological that the book of Ruth specifically has given him. Like he was telling me, I I just interviewed him actually for a video um, at the wine shop that I work at. And he was telling me just like how the book of Ruth just brings about in him, like he just thought about so much about how the universe is chaos. And like, if you give it enough time, things will turn around and with the right attitude. And that, Life and death are are like a cyclical thing and in death influences life in so many ways. And that's why he named it Ruth Lewandowski. And when you look at a lot of his labels, you know, you've got this boar that's flipped on its – or bear or something. It's like flipped on its back, a deer or something, that you can tell it's underground because there's a flower growing on the top of the label. And he's just a very thoughtful human. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And his wines really resonate with me. And he's virtually on his way of becoming, like, he's. this wine has no sulfur added. None of the wines that he made, I think, this past vintage have any sulfur added. So he's, like, his wines are very pure. Um, They're great representations of where they come from in Northern California. And he's cool. (laughs) And his story's cool. And so it's just fun to um, taste wines like this.
1: Fill me up. This wine is... Delicious, and I love the color. It it really is very orange,
0: (laughs) like a sunset
1: kind of, like a burnt orange kind of.
0: Yeah, like right, like before it becomes really red and like orangish red. It's like that kind of burnt amber color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he, what I like about this this wine specifically is he, you know, he took Friulano, um, which is a grape that can kind of get high alcohol. It's, like, got moderate acidity, and it has very delicate aromas. And he's blending that with Riesling that's aromatic but has a lot of acidity, and then Muscat that's floral and Mm. with, you know, moderate acidity. So he kind of created this little puzzle of beauty all from the region and naming it Tato. Tato means tact, but, like, with gentle touch. And so these all have that gentle touch of skin maceration that renders this wine, like, eminently chuggable, yeah. but also, you know, you can think about it for a while. And I think his website actually says something very similar. And those are, as I've mentioned on scores and pours like a gazillion times, those are my favorite wines, mm-hmm. are wines that if I really don't want to think about it, I can, yeah. I usually do. But man, 5% of the time, it's really nice to just drink it. But the other 95%, I can, I can just be like, wow this and that and the acid and the this, and it just plays really well in my mouth. So I really dig it. Um, I'll talk about the label because it's really effed up and fun.
1: Cool. Well, let's uh, talk about, I mean, the most famous part about Handel's Messiah and the part that I really could do without hearing because you hear it so much, but it is the most famous part, that being the Hallelujah Chorus, which sounds like this.
0: What it sounds like when I open wine yes. every day, yes. or almost every day. I mean, <laughs> that song works
1: for more than just the resurrection of Christ. I mean, it, it can really set your day
0: on the right path. The resurrection of the senses daily <laughs> is very important. <laughs> yes. As I sip my wine, <laughs> there's a
1: story that. So if you go, if you go to, let's say. You can go to a concert these days, COVID aside. You can go to your favorite symphony orchestra's performance, annual performance of the Messiah. Because believe me, they probably have one. Uh, you go to that in December. You get all the way through part one. You get almost to the end of part two. The end of part two comes. It's the Hallelujah chorus. Thank God, Hallelujah! Right? Everybody stands up. Why the hell does everybody stand up? Nobody really knows.
0: So. Yeah, because isn't what you're about to say, it's like almost proven, but not it's really? It's not, though. I okay. mean, it's
1: just not. There's no way. The king wasn't there, first of all. I okay. mean, I just would be shocked if King George II was there and nobody wrote about it. That's the thing. King
0: George or King Richard?
1: George. George. King George. Yeah, King George II, if he had been in the audience, first of all, he definitely wasn't in the audience in Dublin. If he had been at the London premiere, more people would have written about it. And that's the reason why people say this can't possibly have been true, because there's like nothing written about it. And that just isn't common. The story I first heard was that he stood up because he was bored. Not because he was like it was because it was
0: so long. (laughs) Yeah,
1: not because he was so like overcome with emotion at the Hallelujah chorus. And that's the story I hear now when people say you stand, it's because King George stood out of divine inspiration, which I never had even heard that. So I mean, it it probably isn't true, but nonetheless, the tradition happened and or started somehow and has continued, and so that's how it goes. You
0: know what, if I were sitting at, uh, you know, in a pew with my family uh, mm-hmm. listening to this, and you know, I would hopefully be sitting next to my nieces because we'd be like coloring together or something, and listening at the same time, of course, I would be like, when everybody stands up and they look at me, because sometimes they look at me like, Tia Jill, why are we doing this? I'd mm-hmm. be like, because King George was really tired of sitting.
2: <laughs> I'd, I would be like,
0: I'd pass on that myth. Of course, yeah. letting them know later that it's likely not true. Yeah, But yeah, it's, it's just a fun thing to think about that people just it's make really funny. shit up like that.
1: I know. And and I mean, somehow those traditions just happen and stick, whether they're real or not.
0: Wasn't something that is like an anecdote, but that is true, was that Handel shipped his personal and his favorite organ to Dublin. Oh, I don't know. For the premiere. I don't know that. Like, And, you know, how long would that take to make sure that it didn't get broken and with the elements and during those times? Like, good Lord. Yeah,
1: that seems pretty intense. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I
0: I don't know. That's amazing. I just, I'd read it on a few different sites and to kind of try to validate. And it seems like there are a few sites that say that, but I'm not sure if it's a real thing. It's crazy. That is
1: crazy. And uh, it's such a great flipping piece of music. I just love it. At the end of the Hallelujah Chorus, then part two's over. And we can go on to redemption yeah. of humanity.
0: Is there one specific part in part three, redemption, that, like, is the, the movement? Or are they, are they all—they're all just too good to kind of say that?
1: They're all great, but—and I, I would say um, the very first movement of part three— is an absolutely beautiful aria that really... I mean, the hallelujah chorus, right? That sets up the ecstasy of the resurrection. And the the aria that happens right after that at the beginning of part three is called I Know That My Redeemer Liveth. And it's one of the most beautifully, tenderly written arias in all of it. So let's listen to this. And this is, you know, just a gorgeous female upper voice soprano singing... I know that my Redeemer liveth. It's beautiful.
0: 24 days and 55 to 60 some movements or whatever you said like I don't even know yeah lots like do that math how many movements a day yeah like I just think of my productive days yeah and I'm like
1: hmm I mean that's insane a lot of these movements are tiny or bitty sure a couple minutes long but there are some really extensive ones too and they get really complex
0: well, I was going to say but even if they're small.
1: Oh yeah. It's like they're it's amazing.
0: Super detailed it's and complex. Very, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's
1: complex and simple all at the same time. I mean, the harmonies and again as I mentioned, you know, the he knew that the performers weren't quite up to London standards. And so he did simplify a lot of the parts and By that, I mean, you know, when you have four voices in a choir, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass, you can split each of those sections up multiple times, too. So you could have, instead of a four-part choir, you can split those up and have like an eight-part choir, 16-part choir. You can really make everything very complex with Mm -hmm. uh, uh, 30 singers or however many are up on stage. And he chose not to do that. He kept everything in four voices pretty much the whole time. So that made it easier for people to learn the parts because in the Baroque era, this this stuff's really hard to sing. Like, if you're not a good singer, this is going to sound really bad. So let's like listen really quickly before we go back to wine to uh, some of the really complex singing
0: that Please, happens yeah, in this piece. So now we're back to part one. Yep, a little chorus action. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. <laughs>
1: But yeah, just even if we go back to the beginning and just listen to how hard that would be to sing for a woman. Listen to the, I mean, anyone, not woman or man, just listen to the beginning.
2: It's right. it's right. Like,
1: I can't sing like that. I can't make those notes happen like that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't sing that fast you yeah know? you could
0: probably play it on the trumpet I could dope. definitely play <laughs> it on the what's trumpet what's <laughs> funny is you, when you're like yeah so let's listen when you said if that if someone was a bad singer like this would be obviously terrible like it, more than terrible and when yeah. you said let's okay so let me show I thought you were going to be like so let's listen to where some people just suck and I was uh-huh. like god who would record that oh man but, I uh, bet we
1: could find that on YouTube though that'd be fun
0: So was he, I mean, obviously this was one of the many, one of the, I don't want to say hundreds because I'm not sure if it's that, but dozens and dozens of works that made this guy so famous. And his thousands of attendees to his funeral and he was buried at, you know, the very famed Westminster Abbey is like, Mm -hmm. this is one of the many pieces that got him there, I imagine, just how the popularity of that piece.
1: He got to Westminster Abbey because he paid for it. Oh, he put really? that in his will. He left money so that he could be buried oh, at Westminster seriously? Abbey. Oh, seriously?
0: Yeah. Go figure. <laughs> and I'm glad okay. for it.
1: Honestly, I've been there and it's so moving. I mean, being at Westminster Abbey and seeing any of the amazing, famous people who are buried there is a moving experience because yeah. you're like, holy shit. But it's it's really cool that he wanted that. And so I think it cost him like... 60 pounds or something in that day's money. Yeah, And I mean, when he died, he had, I can't remember how much, it was something like 220,000 pounds or something, which made him, would have meant he was a multimillionaire when he died. So he he paid for that (laughs) to be buried there, which is, okay. I love it though. I think that's great. Yeah. Good for him.
0: (laughs) This wine is a little bit of the antithesis of that because natural wine, you're sort of making a statement about you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, there are very expensive natural wines out there and they're usually, I don't know, I don't know how worth it they are in my in my own opinion. But, you know, this wine kind of speaks to, it's shy of $30, you know, most people for the holidays could, could afford this if they're drinking wine, if they spend money on wine as part of their luxury item, um, if they're lucky enough to have that. And so it is a luxury item. But this wine is very affordable and it is in that natural wine camp that's sort of like, you know, fuck the nobility and all that kind of, you know, there is a lot of that and, Mm -hmm. you know, conventional farming or whatever. One thing I wanted to just, I mean, this is a little bit of an aside, but when you look at his labels, they're usually very unique and... This specific label was done by a tattoo artist by the name of Justin Grant. And Justin has actually done a lot of Evan's tattoos. Um, He was showing me a lot of his tattoos, and they're really cool. And he said they both like the song by Iron and Wine called The Trappy Singer. It's beautiful. It's it's a little bit depressive if you listen to it. It's very like, I think, modern day hipster depressive sounding. I mean iron and wine. Let's yeah. be real. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's a beautiful song. I was yeah. listening to it this morning. And Evan, you know, they were talking about the idea and like what well, you know, this is what I want or whatever. And and Evan had an idea in his mind. And he, you know, sent Justin with some bottles, of course. And Justin scribbled, 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 and sent him, you know, like, check this out. And Evan was like, well, that wasn't at all what I had in mind. And it's even better. Um, (laughs) So when you listen to the song, there's a lot of these depictions. Oh, cool. You know, uttered in the song, which is really kind of cool. And you never know that if you just looked at it. You know, you'd just be like, what the hell is... This trapeze person swinging from clouds and it's raining and there's a dude with a bass drum and then there's like <laughs> a devil and there's a sword and just it's like really <laughs> – there's a, there are angels and it's just awesome. Mm-hmm. So Nice. Here is to Humble Wine. Mm-hmm. Here's to George Friedrich Handel, mm-hmm. the esteemed messiah. Our holiday season probably wouldn't be the same without it, and we need all all of the great music and all of the great wine that we can muster and afford mm-hmm. uh, during this 2020 holiday season. So, happy holidays to you, Emily Reese. Happy holidays. Here's to scores and pours. To scores and pours. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to this episode of scores and pours with jill mott and emily reese you can find links and information about this episode including a wine list and a playlist and you can support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and poors. on that same website you'll also find a link to our merch page
1: we are also on instagram at scores and pours and you can dm us there if you have any questions or suggestions or show topics we'd love to hear from you there
0: If you just want to tell us happy holidays, you love us. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music.
1: Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan.
0: Scores and Pores is a production of June Media Inc. June, June's little kitty.